0: I invite you now to take out your Bibles and turn to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, will start in verse 65, read till 72. You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Behold the word of the Lord. Please be seated.
1: Thank you, Josh. It is a sweet blessing to hear so many voices raised in song uh, in praise to our Savior, our God, the more the merrier, as far as singing, hearing those voices. I trust you're still in Psalm 119. That's what we're going to be looking at today. I was talking to Riley, and he, I asked him if there was something that um, he would like me to address from the Scriptures. And he said, suffering in the christian life comfort for the christian as he or she suffers and so the the passage that immediately leaped to mind and i went on to look at other passages but i i couldn't get this get away from this one really is psalm 119 and we often think of psalm 119 as really just being about the law being about god's word his precepts and it is that that is that is the Um, overriding theme throughout it uh, which is fitting since it's right in the middle of the bible that it's and it's the longest chapter in the bible but as you may have heard when josh read that passage that section of psalm 119 it also has some profound words for us as regards affliction and comfort and so when we suffer as a christian we are tempted in different ways as far as how we are to handle it. We are tempted in different ways as far as where to base our hope. And so we're going to look at what Psalm 119 says, how it answers those questions. How do we handle suffering? What do we base our hope on? But before we get into that, I want to make sure that you understand that as we look at Psalm 119, the the hope that we have and the, the way that we are given to handle suffering this is for believers. This is for Christians. These are for God's covenant people. These are for people that God has set his seal on. And so these, these, um, these beautiful truths, these comforting truths that we are grounded in are ours as Christians through Jesus Christ, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, through his atoning death and his resurrection. That's where all the promises are yes and amen to us as the word says. So I want to make sure you understand that so that this isn't just the common human experience in dealing with suffering, but that this is this is how a Christian can handle suffering through the promises of God and the sweetness of His Spirit in applying His promises to you. It comes through Jesus Christ. It through, comes only through the gospel. And so if you're not a child of God in, in Jesus Christ, if you're not a follower of Christ, if you haven't put your faith and trust in Him, then you don't have these promises to you that comes only through being a follower of Jesus Christ, having trusted in him for salvation and for life. But we'll talk more about that uh, as we go on. Another thing I want to get out of the way first is, is that in the Christian culture or the Christian, um, universe, I would say, the subculture in church, uh, there have been, uh, unfortunately over the years, a number of wrong approaches to how we deal with suffering, some wrong teaching. So there's a few that I want to ha- I want to talk about a bit before we get into what Psalm 119 says. I have there's there's a number of them, but I have three I think uh, main ones that I've seen in my life, and I still see people espouse today. And the first of which is is a kind of stoicism. And stoicism was kind of the, the thinking that. The, 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 there's you just deny the pain. There, you just be indifferent to the pain, you ignore it. Kind of a stiff upper lip. Just it doesn't exist. Um, it kind of a, a gnostic view that the, the body is, is, is not important. You just ignore it. What matters is the soul. So your pain, you just it's nothing. It's just disregard it completely. The physical doesn't matter only the spiritual. So that's the first wrong approach. The second one, is is kind of a a, a more um, a Christian version of that, I guess, or a a, a holier than thou version, I guess, and that is kind of the the thinking that since we are promised an abundant life in Jesus Christ, we should never show pain or weakness. And I think often in the church that takes the form of guilt, right? Is somebody um, in during prayer request time says I'm struggling with this, everyone else is like, oh. Oof. You're struggling we, we don't we don't struggle like can't believe you're struggling why would you admit that you should as a christian never have struggles you should always be smiling and always joyful always happy never have any hard times uh, because if you are a truly child of god and your faith is strong it won't happen right or at least you should not admit that it happens so you you it's the, the thinking there is that god's goodness is in the gospel is so wonderful that it so overshadows all pain so that pain is nothing. It's, it disappears. To give you an example, I, I one time was at a funeral, a graveside service, and the man speaking said, we should not be crying because this woman is in heaven. And that could be tempting for us to think that way. No, nope, we should not be grieving. No, nope, because this, this person is a Christian and they're enjoying... Um, the presence of God forever which is true and that's good that's something that gives us hope but afterwards I took him aside and I said remember that Jesus wept right before he raised Lazarus from the dead death is still something to grieve over Jesus knew he was going to raise him from the dead but he still wept I think it was partly from the the unbelief of the people but there is death is not something that we just oh there's nothing it's nothing it's nothing no, it's still, it's still uh, an enemy. It's still something to grieve over. But we have hope on the other side of death, don't we? And then the third uh, wrong approach, I would say, uh, uh, lie, like all these are, is the prosperity gospel. That you should never be in pain. If you have enough faith, you will never have any disease. You will never have any suffering because God will bless you so much that you never have any struggle or conflict or affliction. These are all wrong. These are all unscriptural and you can say, oh, well, the prosperity gospel. I don't believe that heresy or this kind of abundant life, wrong view of suffering. I don't believe that or stoicism. I don't believe any of that, but be careful because you can be tempted to slide into that kind of thinking. Uh, I better not mention in church during prayer request time that I'm, I'm wrestling. I'm struggling because people think badly of me that I'm a, that I'm a puny Christian or I don't have enough faith. Well, read the Psalms. He pours out his heart, pours out his heart to God. And we're to do that in church, to, to bear one another's burdens and to, and to pray for one another, weep with one another. So these are wrong ways of thinking about it. But what does, now turning to Psalm 119, what does Psalm 119 say about suffering? And what does it say that can comfort us and that can show us how to respond to suffering? Not in the way that these three wrong approaches respond to suffering, but how does Psalm 119 tell us to properly respond to suffering? To suffering according to uh, the word of God. So, looking at Psalm One Nineteen, I'm not going to read the whole thing. We're not going to go through every phrase. We'll be here all day, and the potluck lunch will have to turn into a potluck dinner or midnight snack. But there are there are, I'm going to look at different path, different verses in this in, in this uh, Psalm, and there are four questions I want to a- ask and hopefully answer from the text. Number one, where does affliction come from? Where does affliction come from? Number two. And affliction, you can put suffering, uh, pain, trial. Uh, just using that word affliction because that's the one that's used in the in the text. Number two, why does affliction come? Why does affliction come? Number three, what sustains us in affliction? What sustains us in affliction? And number four, how are we sustained in affliction or suffering? So, where does affliction come from? Why does affliction come? what sustains us in affliction, and how are we sustained in affliction. Okay? So starting with the first one, where does affliction come from? You may have experienced in your life, you may have seen in, your, in lives of friends and family, that a lot of our fear in the midst of suffering, a lot of it can come from the unknown. Have you noticed that? When you, are, you, when you have symptoms, when you, have, you know you're sick, but they don't have a diagnosis, Often that's more fearful because you don't know. You, you, your, your imagination is running wild. You're like, it could, be, it could run the gamut of things. It could be, um, I could be paralyzed. I could be bedridden for months, years. I could be death. And all the, just, the unknown piles up all these questions and fears. What is the diagnosis? What is the prognosis? How long? Is there anything we can do? And so if we, can, if we could know the source of the pain, it would go a long way to helping us fight that fear. Because it removes some of the unknown. And so, looking at Psalm 119, what is Psalm 119's answer to where does affliction come from? Look at verse 75. Look at verse 75. This is an astonishing truth of Scripture. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Isn't that astonishing? But God is good. We see that, and we'll talk about it more, but we see it in verse 68. If God is good, then how can He afflict me? But then go to verse 91. Say something similar. By your appointment they stand. It's talking about the, the heavens. It's, it's talking about sorry the earth and His faithfulness. It stands. It endures to all generations. By your appointment they stand this day for... All things are your servants. All things including suffering. As I mentioned, this is an astonishing doctrine. And I know it's hard for some to accept that God afflicts us. So we have to be careful here. And to that end, I want to make a couple of points. But first, I want to be clear that that this is a teaching that is throughout Scripture. So I'm going to give you just a few verses, there's many more, uh, just to show you that this is something that is taught throughout Scripture. God afflicts. Let's just put it bluntly. In your faithfulness, you afflicted me, God. Exodus, listen to these verses. Exodus 4, chapter, chapter 4, verse 11. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute, or deaf, or seeing, or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Including making someone deaf, making someone blind, making someone mute. Job one twenty one, And he said, this is Job, after his, his, his kids are taken away, his, his wealth, everything is taken away. He says, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. The Lord took away his kids. The Lord took away his wealth. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then in Job chapter 2, verse 10, he says, he says to his wife, who says, curse God and die. He says, you speak to me as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? So Job has said, we received good and blessing from God, but now we have received evil. And then in the next phrase, to make sure you understand you're interpreting correctly... It says in all this Job did not sin with his lips. So when he says that he received evil from God, it says that he did not sin with his lips. He did not lie. He did not speak wrongly. Psalm 60 verse 3. You have made your people see hard things. You have given us wine to drink that made us stagger. Isaiah 45:7. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. In create, including creating calamity. Philippians 1.29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Notice, it has been granted to you belief and suffering. 1 Peter chapter three verse seventeen. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So it could be God's will that you suffer for doing good. And then finally, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So you can suffer because it's God's will. Suffering, affliction comes from God. So you can say, Josh, okay, if that's true, then how is that comforting? you're talking about this almighty powerful god who afflicts us how can we stand up this under that kind of power and authority how is that suffer i mean how is that comforting because verse 68 back in Psalm 119 is wonderfully true you are good and do good teach me your statutes He's talking to God. He's saying, You are, you define goodness. You you are good and you do good out of your goodness. And so our affliction comes at the hands of our good God. Now, as I mentioned, we need to be careful here and remember that God does not do evil, that He is not acting in evil, He is not doing things that are evil, but that He ordains and purposes the evil intentions of men to accomplish his will. So the affliction can be said to come from God, but he is not the agent of, 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 of evil, right? So in, in the story of Job, there are other agents at work. You remember that Satan Satan is the one that afflicts Job with the boils, with, with, um, with um, health problems. The Sabaeans and the Chaldeans are the ones that kill his family, or like, sorry, wipe out his livestock, and then a wind blows and it knocks down the house and kills his, his children. And so there are other things at play that we live in a fallen world and there there are other reasons for evil and pain and suffering, but that God is sovereign over them all. So that's how the psalmist is able to say that that God afflicts him because God is sovereign over all of these actors, all of these agents, including Satan, the Sabaeans, the Chaldeans, the wind, fire falling from heaven. This is all under God's authority. So when we understand that, you say, how still, Josh, how is that comforting? If we really get that God is good, that he does good, then everything, even the works of Satan himself for the Christian is accomplished for our good. Isn't that amazing? You can look evil in the face and say, do your worst. You're under the, the sovereign authority of Almighty God, and he is good. That's comforting if you get that. When Job attributes evil to God and when the psalmist here attributes affliction to him, it is their understanding, their knowing that God is sovereign over all and nothing happens apart from his will, even evil and suffering. So again, we can be comforted that our affliction comes to us only through the hands of our good God. Notice it says in verse 75, in faithfulness. You have afflicted me. Isn't that wonderful? You look at affliction, you say, the God behind this is not only good, He is faithful. He is faithful. What is He faithful to? I think we see it in the next verse. It says in verse 76, Let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. So what is God being faithful to but His own character and His promises? This faithful God will be who He is. This faithful God will keep His promises because He is faithful to do so. Meaning, this God will never switch from goodness to evil. This God is not like the Greek gods who are kind of arbitrary and fickle and in a bad mood one day and feel like smiting somebody. This God will be consistent. This God will be good for all time that's a rock-solid hope so in faithfulness God afflicts us and we can take hope in that we can take comfort in that that nothing comes to us but that it goes to this good faithful God which brings us to the second question why does affliction come why does it come You may have experienced knowing that the purpose of pain can also give us a measure of comfort or peace as we go through it. An example might be that a cancer patient going through the painful process of chemo and radiation, you know how it ravages the body. It may give a measure of comfort to know that this pain is for a greater purpose of killing the cancer. So if the doctor just said, hey, go through this process and I'm not going to tell you anything of the purpose in the middle of you're like, why am I doing this? Why is my hair falling out? Why am I sick? Where's the hope? Well, when the doctor gives you the purpose, he says the hope is that this pain, this momentary pain will relieve you of, of, of ultimate and future pain and dying of cancer or and being stricken with cancer, that it will kill the cancer. And so you're able to hold on to the Okay, this, is, this momentary affliction has a purpose. So what does Psalm 119 say the purpose of suffering is or a purpose of suffering? Look at verse 67. He read it earlier. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. And then in verse 71. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. So the purpose of affliction, according to these two verses in Psalm 119, is one for correction. I was going astray. I was wandering off the path. But because of the affliction, I came back and I keep your word. And then in verse 71, learning. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. And we see this in reference in Hebrews as far as discipline. Discipline in Hebrews, it says that it's unpleasant for a time. It's painful for a time. Right? But it yields the fruit of righteousness. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, we have another example of, of, of God talking about how he teaches through adversity, through pain. You may recognize this, the famous uh, part at the end of the verse. It says, He humbled you. This is God humbled you, and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. Why? That, that he might make you know. That man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. You see, they learned through being humbled, through being in hunger and and, and, and their face dropping down and being being in, in, in trouble, that God shows them, you are to rely on me. That this manna that falls comes from me. I am your sustenance. I am your food. And I let you be humbled. I put you in pain. So that you may know, so that you may learn. Martin Luther said that if it was not for his what he called his Anfektungen, his temptations, his trials, if it were not for his Anfektungen, he would not know the scriptures. See, he famously wrestled and, and was is afraid of God and and, and and feared because of his sin that God would that he could not be reconciled to God. And so he wrestled and wrestled. He even got a doctorate in theology, just wrestling with Scripture. And it is through that, that he came to see the truth that Romans teaches, that it is not by your works, it's not by you being good, but all of God's grace through Jesus Christ. And he said it is through Anfektungin, this, this wrestling, this trial, this, this, this struggle that, that, makes, that, that makes one a theologian. He says he does not trust people who do not have Anfektungin these theologians who have not struggled, have not learned through suffering. Again, we must be careful to say that this isn't the only reason that affliction comes. There are other reasons. We must remember that we live in a fallen world, that people will sin against us, that there are consequences of sin, ours and others. And so this isn't the only reason that that affliction comes, but ultimately we must say again, God is sovereign over it all, and he works it for our good. Romans 8, 28. He works it for the good of those that love him. As we saw in Romans, sorry, in verse 68, God is good and does good, even in afflicting us. So God purposes in our suffering to correct us, to teach us, and to bring us to closer to him. And you may say, Josh, again, how is this a comfort? What's well, a comfort in knowing that our affliction was purpose built for our good. It's not meaningless. It's not purposeless. It's not a roll of the dice. It's not the, the tornado, skipped that house and hit my house randomly. God is sovereign over all. And so in knowing that our affliction is purpose built. It enables us to action rather than lethargy. It's so tempting for us when we're suffering, when you're in pain, you you wanna just sit on the recliner or or lay in bed and just be lethargic and say, what's the point? But if we understand that God purpose-built our affliction for among other reasons, correction and learning, we can be up and say, what am I to learn? How am I to be corrected? And we can respond in repentance we can look for his training. We can learn his statutes, his ways, say, God in, his, in afflicting me is, is pointing me to his, uh, to his statutes. He's, he's correcting me. He's training me. And so I'm going to be active and looking around for what God is doing. Knowing that our affliction was purpose built for our good also enables us to resist the temptation to think of our suffering as meaningless, as I mentioned. It enables us to resist the temptation that God is not not listening or not caring. That he is afflicting us for good. Another reason that we can see in this psalm for God's affliction of us is in verses 81 and 82. Look at 81 and 82. Look what he says. My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. My eyes long for your promise. I ask. When will you comfort me? Do you see what affliction has done? It has drawn his soul and it has drawn his eyes to the only source of hope and comfort. That's what affliction does. God purposes an affliction to draw us to longing after him, to pining. If you understand that the, the only source or the only solution to your problem is behind that door, will you not wait at that door? Will you not camp out at that door, and say, "The more that you're afflicted, you just I'm going to bring a tent, and I'm just going to camp outside the door and say, "This is it." In a similar way do we? In, in affliction, are we drawn to the only hope, the only, only source of, of, of true and lasting peace and relief is in God Himself, And so we're, our, our soul and our eyes and our whole self is pulled toward Him. It reorients our focus from the temporal to the worldly to the eternal. From the world or the idols in it to the one true and living God. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18 says this, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, they fall away, but the things that are unseen are eternal. You know, sometimes, or very often, actually, in our lives, we, we, are, we, 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 we think ourselves or we act like we are satisfied in the things of this world. Like, this is what makes me happy. This is what makes me get out of bed. This is my hope. This is my joy. This is my purpose. God says, nope, and knocks them all down. So we see the transientness of what we have been hoping in. It falls away. Oh, I've been hoping in my business. I've been hoping in this. I've been hoping in that. I've been hoping in this relationship, in that relationship, in, in this money to come in, at this. I've been hoping in these things. What if God just knocks it all down and the only thing you have left is Him? That seems harsh, but is it for your good? Oh, it's for your good. Would you rather have billions of dollars or would you have God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth? As a Christian, that, that is answered for you. You have a heart to love Him and know Him and desire Him and follow Him. But so we're often our flesh is turning aside to trust in worldly things, to trust in money, and God says, I'm going I'm to have you fix your eyes and longing on Me. And I'm going to show you My worth and My goodness by knocking you down and humbling you to teach you that man does not live by bread alone, but by everywhere that proceeds out of the mouth of God. God works affliction in our lives for our good. Thirdly, what sustains us in our affliction? How are we to stand up under affliction? Where does our strength come from? What does Psalm 119 say sustains us? Put very simply, God's word. God's word. Look at 49 and 50. Remember your word to your servant in which you made me hope. This is my comfort in my affliction that your promise gives me life. Look at 81 and 82 again. My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. My eyes long for your promise. I ask, when will you comfort me? Then verse 92. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. Then 114. You are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word. Then 116. Uphold me according to your promise that I may live and let me not be put to shame in my hope. And then 147. I rise before dawn and cry for help. I hope in your words. And so you see different different words here. The the promise. You see you see uh, law. You see um, statutes. Uh, all these things are, are 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 words that could be used for the word of God, the revelation of God, the communication of God of Himself and His and what He's like to us. And so when we when we hope in His word, we hope in His promise, we hope in His law. We're 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 hoping in His in His in Him, essentially, in, in Himself, in His communication of Himself. But we notice as we look at these verses, all the, thing, the, the, the three main things that we see come from God's Word, from His promise, from His law, and that is this, comfort, hope, and life. Comfort, hope, and life. You see this in verse 93. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. It's so easy for church... To emphasize the Christian life being one of experience we need to foster an experience for people to feel like God is present and when they feel that God is present they'll go home encouraged and comforted and strengthened but that's all backwards you trust that you are your church is made up of Christians and you preach to brothers and sisters in Christ with the understanding that they have been given a new heart, and you focus on the Word of God, and by His Spirit He applies His Word to the heart, and they go in, they go away encouraged and strengthened. It is not a vague spirituality, a, a vague spiritual experience, right? It's it's the it's the black and white Word of God. Is the truths of Scripture apply to us? So when we read of of, of God's promises, when we read of his character, when we read of what he has done for his people, we say, I am his child. He is my God. He has saved me. I am dealing with the same God as I read about in scripture. What he has done, he continues to do and will do. So you go away saying, I can hope in what God has, has shown himself to be, and I can hope in what God has promised to do. You see, so often church is about skipping the mind and going straight to the heart. It doesn't work that way. Always scripture goes through the mind to the heart. You understand what God is saying. You believe it. You trust it. And you experience or your, your heart is warned because of that. Do not short circuit and jump straight to the heart. It doesn't work. That's spiritual vagaries. That's what the, the men and women on... Tell you know, on television, so-called Christian television. Do they make you feel good? They make you cry with stories, and they say this is what God does, and and then you just feel excited and warmed, and you're jumping up and down, and you're raising your hands, and you you dance out of church and say God is going to sustain me. Two days later, what did he? What did the preacher say? No idea. I guess I need to go back for another service. No, the answer is what God has revealed in His Word. You soak that in. You learn it. You know it. And come and from that, by the Spirit, comes comfort, hope, and life. It doesn't say here, if I had not been in a rockin' church service, I would have perished in my affliction. It says, if your law had, been, had not been my delight, I would have perished. Isn't that amazing? God's law, God's revelation of himself clearly written out for us. If that had not been his delight, he would have perished. That shows you the power of God's law, the power of God's revelation. It's not nothing. It's not just a bonus like, oh, that's for theologians. That's for pastors. They can study that. I just listen to Christian music and wave my hands and I have enough comfort and hope in life. No, you don't. This is where it comes from. God's word, God's law, his revelation of himself to us. How is this a comfort? We have his word. we have what we need for comfort, hope, and life. We have been given His Spirit to understand and apply His Word by which we receive comfort, hope, and life. And so we are not left wanting when it comes to what... what we're, not, we're not left empty that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness in His Word. And so when we continually go elsewhere to find comfort, hope, and life, what we're going to is idols. Idols of our own making. We're going to a God that we have built who works through this other method when God all along is saying, I have given you the method by which I comfort you and give you hope and give you life. Soak yourself in that. Listen to it. Learn it. Trust the spirit to apply it to your heart. And you will not perish in your affliction. But how does this work? That we are comforted through the word word of God. That's our last question. How are we comforted and sustained by God's word? Put in one phrase, one sentence, we are comforted, we are sustained by God's word through prayer according to God and his word. We are comforted and sustained by God's word through prayer or by prayer according to God and his word. You see, if you read Psalm 119, the whole thing, you'll understand that this is one long prayer. This is one long prayer. This one long crying out to God. The Puritan Thomas Lye said this, As prayer without faith is but a beating of the air, so trust without prayer is but a presumptuous bravado. He that promises to give and bids us trust his promises, commands us to pray, and expects obedience to his commands. He will give, but not without our asking. This, this quote cut me like a knife because it's tempting for us. And I think it's, it's kind of a danger within reformed circles. For us to think of God as so powerful and so trustworthy and so faithful that I don't really need to pray because he's going to do what's good for him and what's good for me. And so why do I need to get in there and muck it up with my prayer? My prayer is puny. It's not needed. We have to be careful that that is not slipping into a presumptuous bravado that we are trusting apart from prayer. God has given us prayer as the means by which we are grown and encouraged, but also as the means by which he accomplishes his will. It's a wonderful thing. You have not because you ask not. So, if we are to be comforted, if we are going to be encouraged by God's word, it must be married with prayer and a crying out to God. Persistent prayer in the midst of suffering is trusting in God and His word. Persistent prayer in the midst of suffering is trusting in God and His word, it is believing. It's believing verse 94. Look at verse 94. I am yours. Save me. For I have sought your precepts. Persistent prayer is believing that verse. I am his. He is good. He is the one that afflicts. But he has possessed me. He possesses me. He is my God. I am his child. My salvation comes only through him. And so I cry out to him and trust. And I say, save me. And as you pray, your faith is strengthened. But your faith, sorry, your prayer must be according to God and according to his word. In other words, praying while claiming God's character and God's promises you're praying according to God's character and you're praying according to his promises. We see this throughout Psalm 119. I'm just going to give you a few verses that we'll look at quickly to run down through them. Verse 25. He says, my soul clings to the dust. Give me life. Notice according to your word. Verse 37. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Verse 40, Behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. Verse 88, In your steadfast love, give me life, that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. Verse 107, I am severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord. There it is again, according to your word. Verse 149, Hear my voice according to your steadfast love, O Lord. According to your justice, give me life. Verse 154. Plead my cause and redeem me. Give me life according to your promise. Verse 156. Great is your mercy, O Lord. Give me life according to your rules. Verse 159. Consider how I love your precepts. Give me life according to your steadfast love. So you notice what he's doing. He's pointing to God's character, righteousness, justice, steadfast love. This is who God is. But he's also pointing to God's word, his promises, his statutes, his rules. He's pointing to God's character as as revealed by his word and as shown in his grace and goodness to you. And And he's pointing to God's promises in his word. So in other words, praying and trusting while holding tightly and claiming God's revelation of himself to us. Now, do you think God forgot? Do you think you bring a promise to him and be like, God, did you forget this one? Come on now, come on, get it together. No, God didn't forget. He doesn't need reminding of his promises. He doesn't need reminding of who he is. You don't say in your steadfast love and God's like, oh yeah, that's right. I forgot. I'm full of steadfast love. Ah, happened again. No, you're not, you're not giving him something. He doesn't already know what you're doing. And this is wonderful. God has ordained that the means of comfort be also the means of relief. So when you go to that door and you camp out knowing that your hope in being relieved is on the other side, the very process, the very act of going to that door and crying out and and beseeching and, and waiting there is comforting. God has ordained that in that process, in that prayer, in that longing, through according to God's word and according to who he is, you are comforted even if the door does not open and relief comes. Isn't that so good of God? He doesn't give us a, 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 a place over here. Your comfort is over here away from me. He says, no, your relief and your comfort in the midst of affliction is all in me. So aim everything that you are, your, 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 your fear, your doubts, your prayer, your, your longing toward me. And if I do not relieve you, you will be comforted. You will be given life. You will be given hope. Isn't that good? So put another way, When you pray for relief, you are not only praying for relief, but for comfort. God comforts you by His Spirit, through His Word, as you pray for relief. So even if relief does not come, be assured, comfort and strength will. So in other words, you do not only pray for relief when you pray for relief, you pray for comfort. You're not looking just to be answered and to be relieved of suffering, in your prayer for relief, you're also looking for comfort. So it's not, I love the Lord because He has relieved my suffering. I love the Lord even if He doesn't relieve my suffering. And so if this is true, and we are to pray according to God's word, according to who God is and according to his word. How can you do that if you do not know it? How can you pray according to God if you do not know him? As he has revealed himself in his word. So look at v- verse 92 again. If your law had not, had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. So his delight in the law kept him from perishing as he was afflicted. How? How? I think we see it in verse 93. I will never forget your precepts for by them. You have given me life as I was afflicted. I did not die because your precepts gave me life. How does that work? He understands 94. I am yours. Save me. You see what he's doing there. I would have perished in my affliction if I I did not hold and understand and love and be given life by His law, by His precepts, by His word. And if I understand His word, I understand His law, I understand His precepts, I understand Him, verse 94. And if I understand Him and His goodness, which we see He does in verse 68, I understand that I am His and my salvation is all of Him. And He saves me. So God's law told me about God, the God who has me, I am his. You see what the law does, what the word of God does? So take heart, child of God. Your affliction comes at the hands of your good God. Number two, it comes for your good. Number three, God's word can sustain you through it all. And number four, He comforts and sustains through prayer according to Him and His promises. John Newton, the famous writer of Amazing Grace, for months he watched his wife die slowly, painfully, of cancer. And this is what he says. I was not supported by lively, sensible consolations, but by being enabled to realize to my mind some great and leading truths of the word of God. Isn't that beautiful? I was not supported by lively, sensible consolations, but by being enabled to realize to my mind some great and leading truths of the word of God. What he's saying is, I didn't have this, this all this 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 full, the whole time overwhelming, sensible consolation. I didn't feel God standing close. I didn't feel his breath on me. But I w- I was supported by being enabled by the Spirit to realize to his mind, to, to see and embrace and hold and trust these wonderful, great and leading truths of God's word. You see, sometimes in our suffering. We expect God to speak other ways. Like, I'm suffering. God must send an angel. I'm suffering. God must give me a vision. I'm suffering. There must be something. There must be a sign. And so you start interpreting weird things as signs. Oh, a dove landed on my windowsill as I was praying. That must be God. Instead of saying, this is what God has given us. These great and leading truths of His Word that say that He is good. He is good. In His faithfulness, He afflicts where else should our our, should our trust and our hope be but in that good faithful god and so when we are suffering be like john newton wrap yourself in god's word and say this is who god is this is who god is not what all these people are saying not what the world is saying you should give up on god because you're going through suffering if you're truly a child of god he would not have let you go through suffering you say that's a lie God afflicts in faithfulness. God is good. I know it's true because His Word says it. I believe it. I hope in it. I trust in it. It's my anchor. And you look at the cross of Jesus Christ and say, if I need any more proof, there it is. I was, I was dead in trespassing sins. I'm a, I I was a corpse and God sent his son Jesus and hung him up on a bloody tree and said, that's how I'm going to save you. I'm going to pull you up through my son, Jesus Christ. If I have any, any doubt about the love of God and his faithfulness, I look at the cross of Christ and say, is there any greater example of his love and faithfulness than in that? So I urge you Christian. In suffering, hold the Word of God. Hold the Gospel of Jesus Christ and the cross of Christ as, as all the evidence in the world you need of God's unfailing love, His faithfulness, His goodness, and ignore all the lies. But as I mentioned at the top of the sermon, this is only possible for the child of God. The one who sees Christ on the cross and says, that's my hope and joy. That's suffering. Jesus. That's my hope and joy. In His death, I died. In His resurrection, I was raised. That's my hope of eternal life. That's my hope of of being relieved of sin finally and ultimately. That's my repentance. That's everything. If you have not done that, if you've not put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ, then you can only see suffering, and you have no no standard, you have no apparatus to understand suffering. It just seems meaningless to you, but you can, in Jesus Christ, see that God is afflicting His people for their good, Romans 8, has a has, a, has a, a clause in there, a condition. He works all things for the good of those who love Him, who are called according to His purpose. God doesn't work the good of all the world. He, lo- he works the good of those who love Him, who are called according to His purpose. The Christian. And so I urge you, if you're not a Christian, if you're not a follower of Christ, obey. Follow him in obedience. Respond in faith and repentance to his death on the cross, his atoning death on the cross, and then you'll you'll know and experience and see that all these promises of yours are yours. That he works works for your good because he has called you and because he has given you a new heart. You love him. So take heart, Christian. God afflicts in faithfulness, and if you're not a Christian, I urge you to repent and believe. And these promises to you in suffering can be yours. Let's pray. Oh Lord, forgive us. When we suffer, we become desperate for answers that will lay hold of any lie. We'll grab any cutesy saying. We'll be tempted to listen to a preacher that makes us feel better in the moment. And so we turn aside from the deep, beautiful truth of your word that says that no affliction comes but through you. We're tempted to be angry at you. To not ask why in faith, but to ask why in defiance and hatred. So, Father, help us as we suffer. To walk with a limp. To the door. To with broken hearts embrace what you've said hold tightly to you who are faithful and true and good. Do not trust in anything in ourselves, do not trust the doctors, not trust only you. And help us, Father, to uh, unburden our hearts, to pour out our hearts, our soul and our eyes longing for salvation, longing for you. And let us in that, Father, claim the promise that you will comfort us. You'll give us life and hope through your word, by your spirit. As we pour out our hearts, as we pray. Forgive us for being prayerless, Father. Forgive us for only praying when we suffer. Forgive us for not pouring out our hearts even in the good times. Recognizing that every good thing that we have is from you. That is all of your grace. Father, help us to hold tightly to your promises and to the revelation of your character. There is no solid ground anywhere else. We thank you for your comfort. We thank you for your spirit that applies the word. We thank you, above all, of your grace, of your faithfulness, that even as you afflict, you do it in faithfulness and in goodness. Oh Father, give us a rock-solid faith in You. Wrap us in Your Word, Your promises. All this we ask in Jesus' name, Amen.